Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty along with my brother Darren. We're live in the Morton studio today just talking about spraying in your shelter belts. Now, if you farm and you're not done planting, you're probably saying, why are these guys talking about shelter belts today? I got to get my crop in the ground. Look, I understand that. But as you're driving in the tractor, you can be thinking about this task that may not seem like a real big deal, and it's definitely not high on many people's priority lists. But I would flip this around a little bit, and I'd say, just think about your family a little. A lot of times I hear from a farmer who whose spouse is not happy about how the lawn looks or how the shelter belt looks. And so we're going to talk about that just a little bit today. And so... Maybe as you finish up your your work on the farm this spring, you will have a little bit of time to do some work in the shelter belt and your lawn. And, you know, one of the things, too, like even on our own farm, we have some jobs where if I can't go in the field, let's say it's a little too wet to get in the field, then maybe I can actually be in a shelter belt or the lawn or just around the farmyard, something like that. So, we always have to be thinking about what's the next job and what are the important things and, and what do we want out of our farming operation. So I had forgotten that we were talking about shelter belts today, but just yesterday I was looking up some of our information from the last big shelter belt we put in. I can't believe it's already been seven years now, but seven years ago. And the, the trees are doing fantastically well now, but one of the big keys whenever you're you're putting in new trees is getting lots of potassium out there. I mean lots. Because you think about it, what's the most important thing on that tree? The, most trees are growing really tall, so they need a tremendous stalk, okay, as I would call it for corn or soybeans uh, or so when you think about the trunk of a tree, what is it? What's it made of? What's the number one limiting factor? Most of the time, it's potassium. So get your K levels way up there. I mean way up there. I'd like to see 8% base saturation potassium, even in a heavy soil. That could mean 1,000, 1,500 parts per million in a very heavy soil. Not as much in a lighter soil, but potassium doesn't move very well in the soil unless you've got sand and you're willing to put a lot of water onto it. If that's the case, then certainly you can put some potassium out there every year, water it in. So if you've got an established shelter belt and you go, you know, my trees just aren't growing that well, they're not getting that thick, I don't know, they're kind of spindly, get some K out there. And then you just have to water it in. The heavier your soil, the more water it's going to take. But that is a really big key. So another big key is just making sure that you're keeping the shelter belt as weed-free as possible. So our suggestion typically is when you're just putting that shelter belt in, let's say it's very small trees, that you try to keep all plants out of there, all competing plants, including grass, for three years. That's generally what we try to do in our operation. Once we get past three years, then we'll seed grass in the middle, but I will tell you, the last shelter belt we did seven years ago, we put the uh, uh, the plastic down. And, and so, at least in the row, and that most of that plastic is still there now seven years later. It's made it a long time. But it, it does keep the competition down. So, that's a really big thing. But anyway, in terms of what products you're going to use, we're going to talk about that a little bit today and timing and that kind of stuff. But I want to start you with this. 
Over the years, a lot of people have used 2,4-D in established shelter belts. I would encourage you, please don't ever use old 2,4-D again, and I'm dead serious. The stuff moves all over the place. It's just as bad as dicamba for, for volatility. And I'm speaking from experience because one of the first jobs I had on the farm years ago was spraying 2,4-D. I killed my mom's flowers, killed her garden, dropped leaves off all the trees. I was not the favorite son for a really long time. Now, maybe I got to be again, but anyway, the point is... <laughs> yeah, I had Darren muted, so he couldn't even throw throw anything in. But anyway, my point here is quit using old 2,4-D. It's horrible. And the new stuff costs about the same money. It's only just slightly higher priced. So you and if you don't know what I'm talking about with new 2,4-D, it's either Freelex that you can spray pretty much anywhere or Enlist 1 that you can spray in Enlist crops. So the Enlist 1 has another drift retardant in it. And it is only labeled for the enlist crops. Whereas the Freelex, in my opinion, you don't even need that extra drift retardant because the Freelex is amazing. We've been using it for almost 10 years now, way prior to when it even got uh, got labeled. And we've sprayed it right next to cotton, which is the most sensitive plant in the world to dicamba, or I, I should say to 2,4-D. And the Freelex hasn't moved. We've sprayed it literally within 30 inches and no problem. No leaf cupping, nothing. Just we've had very little drift and no volatility issues. So that's the product you want to be using around your yard, in your shelter belts. Switch over to the new Freelix, the new 2,4-D. It's 2,4-D choline. So anyway, we'll talk about products you could spray out in your shelter belts. We'll get into bugs just a little bit in addition to weeds. We should also talk a little bit today, and hopefully I'll remember to do this before we wrap things up, about mites and also about diseases because we do spray every year in our shelter belts for mites and diseases in addition to insects and weeds. So we'll get into all that today. If you've got any questions for us, you can certainly give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. You can also find us on Twitter, agphdmedia, Darren Hefty or Brian Hefty. Dar Darren, were you thinking where you were going to get a question? I was going to talk the rest of the time. I was going to get a question in before I went to break here. Well, because you got all of 40 seconds. You okay, I had, I had two comments. First of all, we were talking about plant tissue analysis, and that's getting started in the north because we got some corn that's big enough. Uh, David said, we're petiole sampling cotton before each irrigation so we can make some fertility adjustments. That's an awesome way to do it, David. And Mayer says, is it feasible to conduct weekly plant tissue analysis? Yes, it is. But you got to plan it out in advance of where you're going to go, and you can't do every acre. you just got to pick a couple of spots in each field and then get that done because it, it is valuable to see the trends over the season. Well, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this. Do you have crop failures due to flooding, drought, or another event? You may need to consider a better burndown regimen. Adding just two ounces of New Farm Panther SC to your tank mix not only provides faster results, it provides residual that lasts. You gain flexibility to keep your cropping options open. Ask your dealer for Panther SC and get Panther Power in your tank. Help keep the toughest, most resistant diseases out of your fields with Lucento fungicide from FMC. 
an exclusive novel premix of two modes of action delivers broad-spectrum control and a long-lasting protective residual. Tackle key diseases in corn, soybeans, wheat, peanuts, and sugar beets. Choose Lucinto fungicide from FMC. Visit your FMC retailer or lucinto.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions for use. Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kid's area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more, and don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field Day. It takes balance to be successful in farming, because what you get out of it depends on what you put in, and Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. We're talking about spraying in your shelter belts. Man, it is finally starting to feel like spring outside, and once it gets nice, you just want to be able to enjoy the outdoors. And one of the awesome things around many farmyards is you get a nice shelter belt to block excess wind, to give you a little bit of shade. All those things are great, but uh, just speaking from personal experience, I've got a shelter belt. It's got some nice little burdock weeds out in there. And, oh, man, I hate it when my dogs pick up those burrs. And you know what? There's some ticks. And I don't like I don't like ticks. I want to enjoy the outdoors and not have to worry about that. And, and just on and on and on. So, yes, there are just some awesome things about shelter belts. But it does take a little bit of management to, to make them really, truly enjoyable so you can be out there all the time and, and have lots of fun and no worries. So we're talking about spraying in your shelter belts today. We're also taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. Happy to have Liz Smith on with us right now with North Dakota State University to talk a little bit about shelter belts. Liz, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. All right. I did my complaining now. Here's here's all my problems <laughs> that I got out there. But uh, just know, I love shelter belts, and I love spending time out there, and so do my pets and my kids. But we want to enjoy them, Liz. We don't want to have any stress. So, so what are some things we should keep in mind? Well, we do encourage folks to spend as much time as possible in your shelter belt. That's a great way to get to know uh, what trees you have. Um, in your shelter belt, protecting your, your farmyard, your ranch yard. Um, identify what species are in your shelter belt because when you know what you have, you can better uh, care for those trees. And um, as you mentioned, some of these weeds that are in our shelter belts are bothersome, especially, you know, these little birds that our socks and our pets pick up and, and bring around. So uh, certainly, mowing or um, spraying in a mature shelter belt is a great way to um, discourage competition from your trees and also just make it more pleasant to get around. 
Absolutely. You know, when you think about some of those weeds, I, I think the time of year is so important about getting things sprayed. And when Brian and I were growing up, we were doing a lot of these jobs for our dad. And, and he said, you know, guys, if you can get out there early in the spring before everything's blooming, that's that's awesome. Now, now you have less chance of hitting things. And then after the leaves are dropping off in the fall, if you get some nice warm weather, you can get out in there too. Uh, what about in season? Because I know there, there are plenty of farmers this year struggling to get crops planted. And many of the guys would say, oh, I, I, I'm just not going to have a chance until we get into June before I can get out in there. Sure. So um, you, your dad's absolutely right. First thing in the spring, um, try to get control of those weeds before they get ahead or, or get a chance to go to seed. Um, control some of those um, invasive sod forming grasses that might be uh, competing uh, for resources with your trees. Getting out there right away in the spring is certainly great. Um, in season, sometimes mowing can be considered for weed control. Um, and then uh, later in the fall, I've heard uh, folks having some some good luck um, after the weeds and grasses go dormant with using maybe a granular uh, fall ap- applied herbicide, you know, and that's that's ready there early in the spring for you too. Let me ask you a couple of tree questions. Uh, first is tree trimming. And one of the, the questions that we'll get from time to time is, okay, I have time to get out there, but I hear we shouldn't trim trees in the middle of the summer. What do you recommend on tree trimming? Are there some guidelines? We've had some storms, and I think in some cases you don't have much choice when, when branches are, are snapped and broken. You, you kind of want to get that dead stuff out of there. But, but what would you advise, guys, in far, as far as tree trimming? Yeah, if you've got a, you know, a storm damage tree or something that's dangerous, uh, definitely get that as soon as you can. We usually recommend that any pruning be done uh, when the tree is dormant. So early in the spring or in the fall after the leaves have dropped is going to be the best best time of year for, for trimming or, um, you know, cleaning up a windbreak. One thing to uh, kind of consider is the overall density of the windbreak. You know, you want a nice dense windbreak to really protect your farmyard. And um, some folks get a little a little carried away with their thinning and actually can over thin their windbreak and uh, compromise its functionality. So we encourage folks to, you know, kind of be a little bit cautious and um, really, really think about, um, am I going to reduce the functionality of my windbreak with this trimming or am I going to improve the functionality? How about moving trees? We we had a derecho come through South Dakota, and I know there are a lot of folks that, that lost some really good trees. Uh, they're wondering about moving in full-size trees. Is now a good time to do that if you've already got an established tree? Sure. You know, um, moving in uh, trees with a, with a tree spade can be a way to have a fast windbreak. Um, there's a couple things to take into consideration. Uh, really anything more than about five or six feet tall might be a little bit too mature to successfully transplant. So smaller trees, um, you know, not much taller than a person are probably that ideal size. They're most likely going to need to be staked when they're planted and um, probably going to need some supplemental watering. And then we, of course, want to try to be sure that the site we're moving the trees from is similar to the site that we're moving the trees to in terms of soil and and other conditions. How about planting new trees, planting little trees? Is that something that we can do any time of the year? In North Dakota, we only plant uh, our uh, seedling trees in the spring, so those trees can take advantage of that beneficial moisture. The further south you go in the Midwest, 
There are some options for fall uh, seedling uh, planting, Um, but in North Dakota, it's just in the spring, and I believe uh, there's probably people planting trees all over North Dakota right now. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. It it certainly is nice to have a good shelter belt around your place, and uh, North Dakota, no exception to that. I can only think of a winter in North Dakota with no shelter belt around my place it'd be <laughs> it'd be tough for sure not very fun that's no yep. no and we've got liz smith on with us with uh, north dakota state university liz thank you so much we really appreciate having you on look forward to talking to you again great thanks for having me let's head out to pennsylvania we've got kevin on right now who farms but used to work in the tree nursery business am i correct in that kevin you are correct that's right so when, when we think about trees and shelter belts, I, I would imagine uh, in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of wooded areas out there. Uh, what are some of the things that you do to try and enjoy them a little bit more? Are there some management practices you need to take into account? Yeah. So um, obviously, yeah, we do have a lot of wood. You know, we're, we're I'm farming woodline to woodline, so I don't have a lot of need for creating shelter belts, but managing them, you know, as much as I can, I, I try to... Um, you know, you, you might want to go with, uh, you know, try to keep the weeds down and then plant some grass in there. So uh, maybe some princep or something like that. And then, um, you know, get some grass established in there in around those trees and then go in with some 2,4-D, you know, just kind of keep the weeds at bay and uh, just really have a nice grass area. And, um, you know, the trees, they're there anyway. You're, you don't, you know, there's no need to plant anymore. Um, but yeah, just trying to keep it clean in and around those trees is the big thing. Yeah. Yeah, it sure is. I know Brian and I got to do that as, as youngsters, we were, we were uh, always in charge of making sure the weeds were out of there and, and it had nice grass and everything else. And, and then have spent a lot of time mowing it as well. All right. So how about Pennsylvania, Kevin? We hear you guys are way behind on planting. How about your farm? It's funny. I just started planting corn today. I'm in the tractor right now and it's, I'm easily two weeks behind for Pennsylvania. You know, we'd like to start the first week of May if possible. And yeah, it just, you know, all of April was really wet and cold. And uh, the first couple of weeks of, of May has been, you know, it was cold as well, but just the rainfall that we had was phenomenal and it kept us out of the fields. And um, it's it's nice right now, but yeah, just, just really behind trying to make up times where we're all at. What maturity corn will you still plant now? So right now I have, I'm at a 100 day corn or 103, excuse me, and then I'll move on to 101, uh, uh, you know, and so forth down the ladder. So I'm right in that area. Um, my corn was spoken for before I had the, the, the bad weather set in, so I couldn't really, you know, switch it up at that point. Uh, so I'm going to stick with the plan. Nah, you're still you're still going to be fine. We just need to keep those planters <laughs> rolling, keep the sunshine coming. Well, Kevin, That's uh, right, yeah. good talking to you. Good luck. I know you're busy. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, and, and good luck here. Stay safe. A- absolutely. Thanks, guys. We're talking about spraying in your shelter belts and caring for those trees on today's Ag PhD radio show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Weather or not, relentless control is what you get with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Protect your season from tough broadleaf weeds and grasses with dual modes of action and overlapping residuals that also minimize resistance. 
With an easy-to-take mix formulation and wide application window, Anthem Max Herbicide is ready when you are. Visit your FMC retailer or ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. This is Stormy Fields with your weather forecast. Today calls for a high of 68 degrees with sunny skies and not a cloud in sight. Planting windows can close fast, so when you need both speed and accuracy, choose John Deere. Our exact emerge planters and precision ag technologies give you precise seed placement for uniform emergence and the efficiency you need to gain ground. See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gain ground. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today, taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. And we're talking about caring for trees and shelter belts on today's show. And we've, we started off with uh, Liz Smith up in North Dakota, trees around the farmyard. We talked with Kevin out in Pennsylvania where there's nothing but trees and he's farming in between them. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit, head out to California where it's been awfully dry and talk to Tony, who's got some peach trees and other trees around. Uh, and I just, I'm curious about caring for them through this tough weather. Tony, how are you doing today? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. How's everybody over there? You know, we're uh, we're doing good. We've had some rain, and that's been a change for us for the last couple of years. How about you? Are you guys catching any rain lately? Not really. Um, I grew up I grew up in the high desert, Mojave Desert, and we get even less water than everywhere else. Um, 
on a good year, we'll get two inches of, of rain. Um, and this year, maybe we got half of that. So it's pretty dry. Um, we're all, you know, luckily, you know, our wells are still pumping out water. And also, I've, uh, I found a tree cutting company that uh, dumped all their mulch for about a month on my property. So I've been able to get that everywhere around all my trees, which is really helping out. Yeah, just for, for moisture loss, you mean, to, to conserve what you get? Yeah. Excellent. Right, Excellent. exactly, yeah. And that way I don't have to water every day. You know, we have a sandy soil. Like I said, it's the desert, so it's a sandy soil. And come another next week, we're going to be about 102 and 105 degrees already. Today we're about 97, 98 degrees. Wow. So we're really hot already. And July, August, we're always over 112, 115, and it's not rare to have seven days in a row over 120 degrees. So it's an extreme environment. All right. So when you're raising things like peaches, uh, what's, what season are the peaches ready? When, what month are they ready? Well, I do have peaches for, for right now, but the early, the late freeze got me. So normally July 1st of July, July 4th is when I have my melons coming up and I have my peaches, I have my grapes, um, it seems like everything's coming in. I do have apricots right now. I grow uh, Katy apricots, Moore Park, and Belheim. I'm harvesting. Well, what the birds are leaving me, I'm, I'm harvesting. <laughs> okay, it's not just the birds hitting our sunflower fields out here. They're finding you, too. Oh, boy. You know, I, I had um, the wind where we're at is crazy. And I, I tried a kite that's uh, like a hawk about a, a, a year, last year. And it worked out fantastic, but the wind blew it apart. So I had a friend of mine, I cut out the shape of a hawk on a sheet of plywood, and uh, she painted it just like a hawk, so it's nice and sturdy. So I'm going to raise that up tomorrow and see if that see if that will work longer than a couple hours. Yeah, what a challenge, keeping keeping birds out of things. Uh, I know a lot of, a lot of folks have tried different strategies. So yeah, it'd be, be interesting to see if that works for you. Hey, it's, it's something. And even if it keeps them out for a while, that that's a good deal. Well worth, well worth the tiny investment trying. really. Well, I have bird scare tape. I have the bird cannon. I have the predator solar panel bird sound, predator bird sound. And now I'll try the kite. I'll have them all going and hopefully, hopefully something works. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough, no doubt. Okay, so with the the trees, we were talking about when is a good time to prune trees and these types of things. We had a caller that called in and said he was taught to prune trees during months with the letter R, so basically September through April. Is it kind of the same thing where you're at in California with with a, a much milder winters? Do you still try and target those months when you're going to do any pruning? Well. That's still a little early for me. I know a lot of the big farms like up in Visalia, the Fresno area, I see them topping their trees that early. But um we actually freeze where I'm at. So I'll oh, wait okay. I'll wait till Dece- yeah. I'll wait till December. I get all my trees done in December and January where they're completely dormant. Um it's freezing at night and, and that seems to be the best time for me to get it done. Well, I like the what you said to start things off with the mulch. That that seemed to make a lot of sense. Yeah. If you can just conserve what you got. Uh, how about nutrition? Do you have to feed those trees as you're going through the year? 
Well, I have a thousand chickens, so I have all my enough said, Tony. You're in good shape. So I have. I should say I have a thousand wild animals. Is what I should say. Geez, those those little <laughs> monsters over there. Yeah, but yeah, I have I have plenty of fertilizer. Um, I go through as, as right after I I uh, prune my trees. I get the fertilizer up there, a couple shovelfuls uh, per tree, and so far, you know, that seems to seems to be doing well. Now with all that mulch, I have too. From, also from the tree company, you know, I'm mixing in the chicken fertilizer with the mulch right now. So hopefully that'll work even better yeah. next year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Tony. You know, it's a, it's a constant challenge and experiment, <laughs> right? Yes. Well, and we think, oh, man, it'd be nice to be in that warmer climate. But uh, that comes with a lot of challenges, too. And uh, when you mention the Mojave Desert and maybe you get a couple inches of rain a year, you know it takes a lot of management to keep things going. So glad to hear well, from I you, Tony. A, Thank you very much. Have a great day. You bet. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's fun uh, when you get to hear from different environments like this. And Tony's always uh, interesting to talk to because he's got so many different things that he's producing out there that uh, that it's I don't know it's uh, it's just different and and very interesting for me. Uh, we got Peter up right now up in Montana. Speaking of different environments, uh, to talk a little bit more here about shelter belts and trees. Uh, Peter's with Montana State. How you doing, Peter? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Uh, all right, so uh, probably not going to get as hot as Tony down in the Mojave Desert, but you certainly have some weather challenges up in Montana when it comes to taking care of trees. Well, certainly, and it's not just the heat. It's actually the humidity that has the biggest impact on the trees, where the, the lower the humidity, the faster the water gets pulled out of them. Oh, yes, good point. So in, in central and eastern Montana, we might... Uh, not be 110, but we'll be in the 90s, but the humidity will be down around 5%, which is, for people not used to that, uh, they call that nosebleed climate because it dries out your, your mucous membranes and gives you a bloody nose. I just had, um, well, we had a storm come through, and there was a tree limb that had blown down, and I was cutting cutting that up to, to try to, uh, I was just going to put it in with our, our firewood pile, and I cut through and noticed there were ants, there were other bugs in. Well, it was a tree limb that was, was in bad shape. Uh, what do you see with insect challenges? I know there have been pine beetles and different things. Are, are you facing any big insect challenges right now in Montana? Well, we're, of course, very concerned about the emerald ash borer, which is an exotic introduced uh, uh, beetle that's hit the ash trees, native ash trees uh, in Ohio and Michigan and uh, has made its way to Minnesota and, and might be in parts of North Dakota and South Dakota already. Uh, because yes, it's in we, South Dakota. We're, we're treating uh, in eastern South Dakota, and we're definitely seeing some trees go. Right. So, I mean, it's we have plenty of native pests. So from 2005 to about 2015, we had a almost historic level of mountain pine beetle outbreak that uh, – killed between 50 to 80 percent of the trees on over 5 million acres, uh, specific to lodgepole pine and ponderosa pine. So they, they kind of ate themselves out of house and home. So they're, they're back to their normal, uh, what we call incipient levels out in the mountains. But in central and eastern Montana, uh, green ash is a very valuable uh, community, shelter belt, uh, and even uh, natural tree that occurs in the coolies. And it, it suffers from a variety of bark beetles as well, but the emerald ash borer is an exotic, and it has no defenses against that. So 
uh, it could really decimate a lot of our community uh, boulevards and, and even some of our native ash uh, draws and drainages that are important for wildlife. Yeah, it's really important to be aware of these challenges. I know for, for us, it's treating trees uh, in your yard, that kind of thing. But boy, on a big scale, that, that's pretty impossible to do. Uh, Peter, when, when you think about emerald ash borer and these mountain pine beetles, we really appreciate all the work that you're doing at Montana State to, to keep everybody aware of these things and, and trying to manage them the best we can. Uh, great talking to you, Peter. we got to run, but thank you so much for being on. Oh, my pleasure. Talking about spraying in your shelter belts and caring for trees on today's Ag PhD radio program and taking your calls and agronomic questions too at 844-44-AG-PHD. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee-owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit MortonBuildings.com. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com farmall. Be sure to attend the 2022 Ag PhD Field Day. I'm Darren Hefty. The Ag PhD Field Day isn't until the last Thursday in July, but we invite you to mark your calendars today for our biggest event ever. Each summer on the last Thursday in July, we invite you to attend the Ag PhD Field Day. The reason we invite farmers from across the country and around the world to our farm each summer is to say thank you. Ag PhD TV has had a brand new episode each week for 24 years, and we've been doing a radio show almost as long as well. At this year's Ag PhD Field Day, we'll have way more equipment and equipment demonstrations than we've ever had before. We've got a lot of new technologies we'll put into our research plots on site, and we'll have great family entertainment, including a kids area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and free food and drinks all throughout the day. Please go to agphd.com to learn more. And don't forget to join us on Thursday, July 28th for the free Ag PhD Field Day. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at soilwarrior.com. Here at Farm Shop MFG, we keep hearing from folks who've tried our germinators. Deverne in Missouri says, After seeing our harvest results, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of the Farm Shop MFG germinator closing wheel. See what others are saying at farmshopmfg.com. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, along with my, along with my brother Darren, if I can speak. Uh, we we are live in the Morton studio today. Just been talking about spraying in your shelter belts. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD. Happy to talk about that or anything that's going on agronomically on your farm. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com. Okay, so to wrap things up on the shelter belt discussion, I told you earlier in the show we talk a little more about diseases and mites as well. Let me first say this. If you're a farmer, your expertise might be with corn or wheat or sugar beets or soybeans or something most likely other than shelter belts. So I'd encourage you if you say... I really want to do a good job out here, but I don't know exactly what I'm doing. You can you can always ask us with question, always ask us questions, but you can also go to a local arborist. You could go to your NRCS office. There are certainly resources that are out there. I'll tell you this too. One of the things that our dad always used to stress to us is he just said, "Look, nobody's going to care as much about your farm or your operation as you." And Anybody is smart enough. You can learn anything you really want to if you take the time and put your mind to it. So if you want to have this fantastic shelter belt, you can. And I'm not saying anybody out there or any one person has all the answers. It's good to talk to a lot of people. It's good to read up on things. It's good to try things out. That experimentation, the trying, the trial and error, I've always found that to be the best teacher, because you learn from your mistakes. So I'll just tell you a few things on our own farm that we have learned and in our shelter belts. So one of the things that came up, Darren had asked a question a little earlier about pruning, and we had a caller say basically pruning in the fall or early winter. When Darren and I were growing up on the farm, obviously during the year we were in school, and so our time to work on our shelter belts was primarily in the summer. And so I remember the one year that Darren and I spent, I don't even know how many weeks just working on, I think it was just mainly one shelter belt primarily, but we did tree pruning right in the middle of the summer. And I did hear some people right then say, oh, I don't know about doing that and that's not going to work. I was just in that shelter belt the other day, 30 plus years, well, almost 40 years later, man, I'm getting old. But anyway, my point is apparently the trees did just fine. So you can certainly prune your trees any time of year. It's just there's definitely more risk at certain times of the year. So, yeah, a lot of times they'll say when the tree is dormant or just about dormant. All right. I also mentioned a little earlier in the show spraying Freelex, the new 2,4-D. That's a really, really good idea as opposed to old 2,4-D. So that's a lot of times what we're spraying in shelter belts to kill broadleaf weeds. Now, early on... Let's say we've just put this shelter belt in. What could you do that would kill everything? There are a lot of people that will use Casseron. The problem with it is it's really expensive. So for us, trying to get by cheap, of course, we used some Prowl. We used Roundup to kill anything that would come up and tried to keep that shelter belt as weed-free as possible for the first three years. Then after, I mean, we were we would allow anything to grow out there. We seeded grass, and since then, basically all we've sprayed is Freelix. Now, let's switch gears and talk about bugs for just a second. We are pretty big believers, at least in lawns. You can do this in shelter belts as well. Putting out some imidacloprid once a year, we do it in the spring, put out a dry, water it in. That 
helps us with a lot of the below ground insects because one one thing that we hear from people whether it's moles or voles or any of these burrowing rodents they can be really problematic and rip up your shelter belt rip up your lawn well rather than kill them because that's what a lot of people talk about. Well, how do I kill these things? I'm like, okay, let's step back for a second. How do you kill their food? Because when they don't have food, are they going to stick around there? No possible chance. They're gone. So kill the food, kill the grubs, and you can do that very inexpensively with generic imidacloprid. Um, okay, other things that we do in the shelter belt. I, I mentioned this disease and mite thing. All right, so every spring now for the last few years, we've been going out there with acephate with chlorothalonil, and with an, another miticide. So the reason why we're doing all that, and we'll, in, in for our big shelter belts, we're calling it a plane. We, we want to make sure that we're, we're doing as much as we can. It doesn't cost much because we don't have many acres of trees, all right? But I'm just saying when we can have good disease control and some insect control and mite control as well, that's awesome because we have had issues. We have had arborists out before and they've said, ah, yeah, you got this problem. You got that problem. It's typically diseases and mites are a lot of times our biggest issues. Okay. On top of that, we did talk about fertilizer just a little bit and I mentioned potassium, but that's not the only nutrient. Think about trees just like a crop. It's the same kind of thing like we talk about in pastures. If As soon as you switch your mindset and you don't think as the pastures, oh, it's just grass, whatever, you think about it as a crop. Like, hey, I'm trying to get as much as possible out of that crop named grass in my pasture. All of a sudden, you're going to start treating your pasture just like you do your crops. You're going to soil test. You're going to do tissue testing. You're going to... Uh, do rotational grazing out in the pasture. You're going to do anything you possibly can to make sure it's great. And in a lot of cases, you can dramatically increase your tonnage. Well, I'd say the same thing out in that shelter belt. If you really want it to do well, and I know you probably you may be hearing this and you're going, um, Brian, I got to make money on the farm. I really care about my stupid shelter belt. But you know what? Eventually, and someday. You are going to care about that shelter belt. You're going to go, wow, it's really nice I had that here for, for the winter or whatever. I don't know. But all I'm telling you is if we're going to do anything, let's do it well. So with this shelter belt, it does need N, P, and K. It needs micronutrients. Just do some soil tests. It costs very little money. And also, even like the potassium thing, and I said, hey, load it up to 8% base, base saturation K. If I was to tell a farmer that that has 5,000 acres, they're going to go, um, yeah, that'd be great to say, Brian, but I don't have millions of dollars I want to throw out this year. With a shelter belt, how big could it possibly be? What do you have, three acres, five acres? It's nothing. So what if you spend a few hundred dollars an acre on fertility? It doesn't add up that much. And if you get that done one time, that's going to buy you a, a lot moving down the road. So that's kind of the way I looked at it, fertilizing our shelter belt the first time. And then every year, we'll put on just a little bit of fertility. We spend a few dollars. It's no real big deal, but it makes a difference. And so now I got an amazing shelter belt that we put in seven years ago. And I'm really happy that I do. It's going to be nice wind protection. It's already nice wind protection, but it's going to be really great once we get a few years down the road. And sometimes... It's really hard when you think about shelter belts because you're like, okay, I'm doing all this work. Who's going to get the benefit? My kids and my grandkids. 
Okay, so I understand. You may not see a lot of the benefit. That's almost the way I looked. I was I was young enough where I'm like, okay, I'll get a bunch of benefit out of this. But yeah, imagine putting it in at age 60 or 70 or 80, and a lot of people do because they think about the long term. And so if you are doing that, I applaud you and getting that shelter built in. But now it's time to take it to the next level. Let's make that thing great. And it's the same thing, again, with, I don't care if we're talking pastures, crops, anything. Maybe it's your lawn. A lot of these same exact steps, it's the same thing in lawns. So soil test it. For fertilize properly. Don't cut it too short. I mean, there are just a number of things that we can go through with all that. So anyway, again, if you've got any questions on this or any other agronomic topic, you can give us a call, 844-44-AG-PHD. Let's jump back to the Ag PhD mailbag. Darren, what you got for us next? Uh, oh, boy, I don't have a quick one for you, though. Uh, I get this one from Jerry. He's got a hayfield, alfalfa hayfield, and he's got curly dock out there. And since it's not good for the animals to consume, he said, what do you think about butyrac? I'm concerned about hurting my alfalfa, uh, but yep. I got curly dock. What else can I do? Yeah, nothing real great. So basically you have raptor, you have buckterel, and you have butyrac. That's it. But the problem with butyrac, we never like going more than a couple ounces. I would throw that couple ounces in a butyrac in with either buckterel or or raptor. And unfortunately, that's about all you can do. I've, now, I've actually had surprisingly decent luck on curly dock with raptor. That's what I was... If yes. you stay at the high rate exactly. and, and you can spike in a little bit of butyrac like Brian was saying, it's worked better than I expected it to. Right. Now, is it great? No. But it's a lot better than doing nothing. I'd give that a shot, Jerry, before you give up. Yeah. So Curly Doc is on the Raptor label. Just make sure you keep that rate high. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, it means getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting experts who will work with you to create a program unique to your operation, all while accounting for the quality of your soil and the products you're already using. It's not just a product. It's peace of mind knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Come to the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event this summer. Here at Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support and encourage folks entering the ag industry. That's why we're devoting a full day, Saturday, June 25th, to the free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event. Though this day is geared towards high school and college students as well as young farmers, anyone with a desire to learn more about agronomy is more than welcome. Our hands-on sessions in the field will include a comprehensive guide to scouting, ways to improve soil and crop health, the role of natural microbes in farming, and how to best collect and manage on-farm data. Plus, we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships to eligible attendees. So whether you're a college student or just want some good agronomy information, this is one event you won't want to miss. It's the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Day, Saturday, June 25th on the Hefty Farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Learn more and register at agphd.com. 
Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. In a world of Veltima fungicide. Hey, let's do it less dramatic. Just say Veltima fungicide. Okay, Veltima fungicide. No, that's literally the same. Veltima fungicide. Still doing it. Veltima fungicide does it. Seriously, we just need you to say Veltima fungicide. Swift, simple, and secure. Didn't I? Veltima fungicide from BASF in cornfields this summer. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Martin Studio today. We've been talking about spraying in your shelter belts, but our phone lines are always open. Taking your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. So back to those phone lines. we got Rick with us right now down in Texas with a little challenge out in his fields. Rick, how's it going? Doing good. How are you, sir? Not too bad. Not too bad. What can we do for you? Uh, you said a chemical to kill mold. And I was wanting to know what that was. I, I didn't hear it. So. Sure. So what we were talking about is not actually killing the moles, but killing their right. food. Yeah. Right. So, yep. So that's typically what has worked best. And moles will eat grubs. That's their number one food source in a lot of cases. So what we'll use is a generic imidacloprid. So like gaucho is the name brand product and there are dries and liquids out there that that could be used it all depends on your situation and crop and whatever but i'm just saying imidacloprid is a labeled product on moles does an excellent job and it's really pretty safe for the environment and human beings so it, we have it in st augustine you got any problem with that uh no. shouldn't be no nope shouldn't be nope all right, and also they're going to be around. A, we got a, about fifteen acres of pecan trees. Yep, that's that no problem. Out there. Yep, awesome. yep, 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 no problem. So thank yeah. you for your help. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime. Yeah, when we start talking about imidacloprid, it is in the same chemical family as nicotine. Now I realize you might say, well, wait a second, isn't nicotine super harmful for for people? Well, yeah. I mean, if you're uh, if you're ingesting nicotine constantly every day. That's one thing. Right. Now, the big but, thing, Brian, is just to water it in. So I would not spread it or spray it when you when you have flowering trees right there. If you're in a, a pecan grove, uh, that way you don't have to worry about pollinators and that kind of thing. And then I'd water it in because it has to move down into the soil where those grubs are at in order to work. Yeah. And so what Darren's talking about here is no damage to the trees. It's simply damage to the bees. We don't want to have a bee kill out there. The problem with imidacloprid, it doesn't kill bees quickly. It kills them slowly, so they might be able to bring it back to the hive. So, yes, if you can spread this in areas or use it in areas and timings when you don't have that going on, you don't have pollinators around, that's the safest and most responsible time to do that. All right, got an email that came in from Nelson, and he said, I, I've been using the AgPhD GDU calculator app for the past few seasons to keep track of 
of emergence and crop progress, and, and it's not working. He sent us a picture of an error message. Nelson, thanks for sending that in. We uh, we actually went in and got that fixed. So everything should be working for you now. There was a change in the code of some sort. I don't understand all that kind of stuff, uh, but our app developers got that taken care of. So thanks to Alex and the team for, for getting that turned around, and thanks, Nelson, for giving us a heads up that something wasn't working right there. Um, let's see, we got some soil tests that came in from David and he wanted us to take a look at those today. So I'm just pulling those up. He said, yeah, here are my grid averages. My questions are on NPK sulfur, zinc, and boron. Primarily I am in Kansas. Hey, thanks David. Really appreciate you sending the samples in and okay. So it's, it's, in, a, spreadsheet. it's in a spreadsheet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. It, we get, we get, uh, <laughs> samples in different formats. And so sometimes yep. it takes us just a second to get the format down. Okay, so pH is mostly in the sixes, low sevens. It looks like so that's. I'm uh, glad you found that mostly quickly, mostly oh, in yeah, range. I see there's one that's a seven eight, but. Okay, so you keep looking, Darren. Let me comment just on that to begin with. So you've got a range that I see anyway, it looks like five point eight to seven point eight, and this is one of the big things we talk about all the time. People have variability in the fields. Almost everybody does. So if you're only pulling a test here and there, you might not be able to find all that variability, and then you improperly treat the area because you think it's one thing and it's actually something else. And I'm speaking from firsthand experience because this is one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made on our farm is doing a bunch of lime work where we didn't need lime. We wasted our money, raised the pH artificially, then we lost yield, then we had to put elemental sulfur on to get the pH back down. It's like, oh my goodness. How about we just do a few more soil tests? So I don't know how big your zones or grids are here or anything, but I, I would just say that as a general comment, okay? And with that 5.8, when it gets that low, then usually we like to see a little bit of lime out there. Once you get into the sixes, you're good to go. At a 7.8 pH, we just usually will say, all right, what's causing our pH to be high at that point? Now, 7.8 isn't horrible. It's just not ideal, and it's not really what we're ultimately shooting for. But the things that will raise pH quite a bit, magnesium will raise it roughly 1.6 to 1 compared to calcium, and sodium we'll raise it roughly 4 to 1 compared to calcium. So a lot of times when we start seeing pHs in the 8s, we've got issues with magnesium or sodium. In this case, it's neither because we only have 13% magnesium. We got 0.2% sodium. So it's literally just a calcium thing. It's 82% calcium. So a lot of times there, it's, you know what, we probably just need some more sulfur, flush a little, little of that out. And sure enough, when I look at the sulfur, I go, ooh, we have six parts per million of sulfur. And I would say that all of your tests are fairly low, not not entirely. I mean, there's one where you get 70 parts per million on, on sulfur. Great. Okay, that's what I'd love to see, or at least 50. But when you're down to six, that's going to be yield limiting. Okay, Darren, what else did you notice on his test? All right, well, our base saturation K is in the six range. We've got a couple that are really high, like one at 16 and another at 10. So it looks to me like you're in a good spot when fertilizer prices are high. You aren't going to have to be applying potassium. And please don't put on more potassium. If you're at 16% base saturation K, that's too much. So let's just say, for example, you had lots of manure. Find a different piece of ground to put the manure on. Uh, yep. the, the PM3, I'm assuming, is phosphorus, malic 3. 
And a lot of that uh, is kind of variable. And, but, and it's pretty low. When we start talking 30, that compares kind of to uh, a Malik 3 test is going to compare on phosphorus. is going to compare to a P2 or strong Bray test. In other words, what's available now plus what should be available through the next growing season. Well, running the simple math, that's not going to get you there for, for many yield goals. If you're talking 30 parts per million is all. That's 60 pounds. You're going to need more than 60 pounds of phosphorus for a, a, a big crop. But I'm not sure exactly what yield or, or anything we're talking about here. You know, when you look at the other nutrients you asked about, zinc and sulfur and boron, they are all low. And uh, I know on some of the sulfurs, you've got 30 parts per million. It's just not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough to feed this crop. So you're definitely going to need more sulfur. You're definitely going to need more zinc. And you're certainly going to need boron. Now with boron, this is one that as you get into drier areas, and we've got a lot of variants here in the soil. We've got anywhere from a 10 CEC to a 25. And we've got organic matters uh, generally around 2, give or take a little bit. Uh, some a little higher. But a lot of lower. lighter soils. A lot of lighter soils. And that's where boron, sulfur, and and nitrate they're leachable so just keep that in mind you're going to have to be spoon feeding them to some degree but to darren's point on the heavy soils you get 20 25 in a drier area you might not have to apply boron every single year okay so here's something you can think about because i see a lot of these samples are from fields that are intended to go to wheat or they're in wheat right now when we think about wheat crops and you look at that head the lowest kernels on the the wheat head are going to slough off kind of like the top kernels on an ear of corn when you're short of boron so you need to make sure you've got boron and you've got availability as you get into the reproductive stages. So uh, when you get past flag leaf, if you're putting on a nutrient application, make sure you include boron in that and try to get some boron out there. Um, you know, overall, I guess there, there's a lot of good things here. No doubt this is a, a good place to start from. Uh, but there are some of these things like the boron and the zinc. The zinc you can certainly hold in your soil, so you can get that up. Brian, where would you target zinc parts per million? If let's just say we had 30 parts per million on the phosphorus that we're going to use as a base and we're going to be applying at least what crop removal is every year. Okay, so a lot of times we talk on the show about a 10 to 1 ratio of phosphorus to zinc. But it all depends on who, what type of test is being run. So I assume it's Malik 3 and your zinc here. If so, then we a lot of times will see more zinc on the test than we do in a DTPA test. So anyway, I'm just trying to say it's not always 10 to 1, but it's usually somewhere around there. So just using that as a ballpark and saying, hey, we're already at 30 and we'd like to see, let's call it 50 at least for phosphorus. That means you need to have your zinc levels at 3 to 5. And also understand phosphorus and zinc don't move well in soil. So we like to see them applied below the ground or tilled in or something so we don't have to worry about losing them to erosion. Hey, thanks for sending in the samples, David. And if you've got some follow-up questions for us, don't be afraid to send those as well, radio at agphd.com. Had a fun show today talking about shelter belts. They're super important, and uh, we want to take care of them. And now's a good time to get some of those things done to help those trees through the summer. Thanks for listening to our program today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.